0: 18 plus.
2: A week so tumultuous, so full of drama, panic, sadness, but then hope that we almost forgot there was a football match at the end of it and what promised to be a great one too in the end. It didn't quite meet those expectations. But welcome back to the Manchester United weekly podcast with Harry Robinson and Jack Tate, where we're reviewing a nil-nil draw against Leeds United. A game we probably should have won, but we're also talking about the collapsed Super League, the future of football and the more short term future of Manchester United with the Europa League semi-final against a Roma at Old Trafford on Thursday night. In the middle of the show, there's your regular youth and women's roundup as the under-23s and under-18s scored a combined nine goals this weekend went four from the women's team as well. But Jack, let's begin with Leeds. It's, I mean, let's talk about the, the, the on-pitch football first. Leeds, there wasn't much this game. In the middle of this season, at least, we felt there were so many missed opportunities. Now, given where United are and the fact that The title is basically cities. Had they lost Aston Villa, this would feel very much like a missed opportunity. It still is, but not one that's going to rankle quite as much because United are kind of comfortable in second and not going higher or lower than that. Um, But enough chances to win the game and not clinical enough was, I think, the reality from that.
1: Yeah, that really was the reality watching watching the game. It was a weird... A weird feeling I think watching United after all of the drama and the events of the last week or so in European football It almost felt wrong to, to just be watching a game as if it was any other Sunday um, but yeah I mean not a game that we'll remember for a particularly long time it was two teams I think very much wary of each other's threat and cancelled each other out in midfield for much of the game I thought the Calvin Phillips Bruno Fernandes' battle was was brilliant to watch. Yeah. At times, they the two of them tracking each other. The, the the thing that Bielsa's system of man marking does is it does create those one on one battles throughout ninety minutes that are really good fun to watch. It became quite a scrappy game. There was a lot of challenges flying in, especially at the start of the second half. But there there was just there never seemed to be any spark ready to ignite the game. Our quality wasn't quite there. We had a few decent openings, but nothing that you would call a, an extremely, you know, a, a, a great chance that we had yeah. to have scored. Leeds had a few good breaks of their own. It, there just really wasn't a whole host of, of action really in the yeah. entire game. I mean,
2: we set out to do what we did back in December and Leeds had learned their lesson. Um, we we started very quickly and it, it actually the first couple of minutes at least, it seemed like, oh, here we go again. Uh, we're well up for this. And to be fair, United were well, well rested for once. Having had, uh, I think I was listening to an interview with Nemani Matic before the game where he said they'd been told at training that morning that, uh, it was the first time they'd had a midweek off since August, 2019, which seems incredible. I know this season at least, but I obviously you're you're discounting the preseason that wasn't the gap between, um, football shutting down and restart and, and project restart but that's that's at least what he said um, But and, and we know it to be true for this season since September 2020 at least so United did come out fresh but yeah we try to do the same thing as you say you get those opportunities to to beat players one on one and if you can do that then you can cause a Leeds problem we did do it a couple of times Rashford tried a couple of, of nutmegs in, in both halves Dan James had a little bit of joy and, and worked hard and it, yeah, Calvin Phillips was excellent against Bruno Fernandes, to be fair. It felt very much like a, an under Herrera against yeah. Eden Hazard kind of display from him.
1: Yeah, it really did. It, it was probably the, the most fun part of the game to watch. I thought it was really, really good. Two very good players really going at each other for the, the whole game. Fernandes got the better of Phillips a couple of times. As that one moment, I think, at the start of the second half from the throw-in. We managed to turn him really nicely and probably should have got his shot away quicker with his left foot before the, the chance went away. In general, I thought Phillips. Yeah, he shadowed Fernandez brilliantly. And it, it's it's such a throwback system that that Bielsa plays, but it does does make for good viewing at times when there are two very good players in in the same position on the pitch. And yeah, you know, you get to watch them going at it for the whole game, which is not something that that we normally get. You know, no matter where Fernandez went, he couldn't get away from Phillips.
2: Yeah, it I, was. Sorry, just on that one. As you just saying that, do you think one-on-one battles have kind of Become less common in football recently?
1: Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, especially for four defenders in particular. I mean, how many times do you really see a centre back ever really run at 1v1 other than when it's a counter attack? Yeah. It's very, very rare. It's so much more about positioning, I think. It's why, you know, Aaron Wan bissaka is a bit of a throwback defender. Now he's making, you know, 10, 15 tackles a game, maybe, but most defenders aren't in that business at, at the moment. And it's just the way that the game has evolved. I think it's, it's so much more about what you do off the ball than what you do on the ball. The game has become much more complex and tactical rather than just relying on this is your man, follow him for the whole game. So yeah, I, I definitely think there are, there are less one-on-one battles throughout the pitch, to be honest. And the thing is as well is that f- football has become so much more fluid, especially in attack. So you know, you you put this in a normal game, and Fernandez is maybe being marked out the game by Phillips for the first twenty-five minutes. He'll just give Rashford a shout and say, "Hey, let's switch for yeah. five minutes." And Raf Fernandez will go out wide. He'll drop deep, and then Phillips won't follow him because he's supposed to stay in position. The difference with Bielsa's leads, obviously, is that they will just stick to you. So Phillips will follow Fernandez whether he's playing right back or left wing. But normally, Fernandez has a bit more freedom to create that kind yeah, of
2: space. I guess you could say. Bielsa responds to fluid attacks by also having a very fluid defence that can kind of they could. I mean, yeah. look at Stuart Dallas is a supposedly a defender, but plays in midfield all the time this season at least, and I think one of Leeds' longest-serving players, but he's played all over the pitch, and that is that is Bielsa ball. Um, but I mean, Leeds are impressive, and they're they're great at blocking and great at following their man. Um, but we should have won that game. I think. I mean,
1: and and they're good to watch. Fun. Yeah
2: yeah Um, Dan James started again I mean Solskjaer yeah he tried the same tactics and to be honest it almost came off a little bit more clinical United could have won that game by two or three goals to be honest and and Dan James is he he gives you he gives you a lot he gives you hard work and and especially in this kind of game is very useful but for that stuff in return you sacrifice clinical finishing and he had two or three chances that he fluffed um but that, I mean, that is the nature of, of him as a player. And United had a couple of, I mean, Greenwood had a couple of chances where he didn't couldn't quite get it off. Rashford did, Bruno did. Um, so I think I think the chances were there. I'm, I think some people might say it was the same issues for United in terms of fighting space and and not being good enough at set pieces. I think there is something in that, but I also think just a bit better of finishing and we would have won that game.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a game that we, on balance, probably should have won. I don't think we created enough to, to say that we deserve to to win, no doubt. But we had a few moments here and there. I, I mean, Dan James, like you said, you know what you're going to get when, when Dan James plays. There's going to be moments where it's a bit frustrating, where the end product isn't quite there. But actually against a team like Leeds that does follow, do follow their men wherever they go on the pitch, someone with Dan James' ability to just run and run at you for 90 minutes is actually a huge positive because... I mean, some of the runs he was making was dragging Alioski at left back all over the all over the pitch, and it was creating space for us. I thought he did okay. You know, nothing that you wouldn't really expect. It, I'm struggling really to to find too much more to say about it. It, it was yeah. a game that it, was often played in, in midfield. There there wasn't too much going on. I thought you know, if Solskjaer set us up in the way that you would expect against Leeds. I think it worked okay. I think he made the right subs. You know, there's there's nothing really too the, the one
2: thing i controversial point out, to to
1: come away from the
2: game with. Yeah, the one thing I'd point out is is set pieces. United had plenty of them. I think, especially in the first half, I think it really felt like we were getting consistently getting free kicks and corners. In the second half, I think it was more free kicks. There was a lot of uh, small fouls from Leeds to break up United's play, but set pieces, corners, and free kicks. How, we've got to do better. on Harry Maguire is, is is brilliant at finding space in the penalty area. Surprisingly so, maybe, but not good at finishing the chances that come to him. And so many of them do come to him. And I mean, how different would United's season be with five goals from Harry Maguire instead of one or two? Yeah. Um, if he it's almost can get every game his- there's a
1: missed chance by Maguire.
2: Yeah, yeah. And 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 that consistency to be able to find the chances in the penalty area for a player who, even though he doesn't score, and I think as United fans we know that, even though he doesn't score those chances often, has a reputation for scoring them, rightly or wrongly. So for a player with that reputation to constantly find the chances is is surprising and impressive. He but he has to start scoring more of them. And United have to work more on scoring, more set-piece goals. But uh, the final word on Maguire. Some defenders just
1: have a knack, don't they, of of finding the ball in in the opposition box. Yeah. Sergio Ramos is obviously the most famous one, but I remember Gary Cahill was like this as well when he was at Chelsea. used to pop up with goals. felt like almost every few weeks he'd have another goal from a set-piece. I think, and it seems like Maguire sort of has that trait as well. It's just a case of actually putting some accuracy into the headers. I think set pieces at both ends of the, of the pitch is something that we definitely need work on over the summer. I mean, last week in the Burnley game, it, it felt completely inevitable that we were going to concede to a uh, to a set piece at the start of the second half. And and we did eventually have, can go back so many occasions this season where we've conceded sloppy goals from set pieces. So at both ends of the of the pitch, I think that needs to be a priority for us over the summer.
2: Yeah. I mean, if United could have the goal scoring from defence as Ferguson did with with Bruce and Pallister um, I mean Bruce in particular I mean what was it he got in one season 19 in one season I think it was um, as one of one of United's top goal scorers obviously he, he scored penalties as well but scored loads of headers as did Pallister um, that that would be particularly helpful uh, final thing on Leeds uh, Pogba 200 appearances for United, made his debut at Elm Road in 2011 and 10 years later makes his 200th appearance for the club at Ellum Road again. Um, Just something to note. But uh, with that, relatively little to say about what promised to be an entertaining but also historic fixture when Leeds were promoted and in the end was kind of a drab affair with no fans in attendance, unfortunately. But Leeds will be staying up and and United fans will be at Ellen Road next season, hopefully, uh, fingers crossed. But let's talk about the Super League. We we ranted at some length on Monday when the story had yet to develop in its full way. If you want to hear what we think about the idea, you can listen to that. But uh, we're not going to kind of do the rant again. Um, Instead, let's talk about uh, the, the, the following. Edward Wood promises to resign. At the end of the year. Which is strange. Um, Resigning. I mean I'd expect. I kind of expect him to go in the summer. Even though he said it'll be the end of the year. um, Because resigning mid-season seems illogical. Uh, And the Glazers acknowledge the existence of Manchester United fans. There was a protest outside Old Trafford on Saturday at 2pm. There'll be another one before Liverpool on May the 2nd at uh, 2pm. And... It's been heartening in a way. the The response to the Super League and the swing from sadness to hope in the space of about twelve hours was was incredible. It has just, I mean, that 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 range of emotions over the last weeks has been pretty incredible, hasn't
1: it? Yeah, I mean, when was it Tuesday night that everything mm-hmm. sort of fell apart? I mean, those few hours was uh, it was it was probably actually not really like anything I've ever experienced before. Twitter was, I mean, just absolutely off the off the charts in terms of all of the stories that we were getting. It felt like every five minutes there was a new story, whether it was a club pulling out, whether it was a, a head being rolled as a result of this, including Ed Woodward, whether it was rumours about owners wanting to sell or, you know, uh, Florentino Perez actually deciding that there was still a future here, Barcelona and Real Madrid, saying that they still were invested in the Super League. <laughs> I mean, it was it's just all sorts happening. And it was a a seriously amazing turnaround. I think I'm still very, very shocked actually at how quickly it did fall apart. I know that the, the scale of the reaction from everyone rightly so was pretty much unprecedented in football to have everyone united to that degree. But I really thought just that the financial incentives involved would be enough to basically convince these owners that, it was a, it was due this to the Super League at all costs, you know, and, and it, it, almost exactly what you said, Harry, about, you know, when I mentioned, brought up the prospect of uh, Old Trafford being, you know, a thousand fans full playing Real Madrid in the Super League and your response was, they'll just take it to the US or Asia. Yeah, There were even rumours that that was being considered <laughs> in the run-up to the Super League collapsing. You know, it felt like this was a complete slap in the face to fans we don't need you we don't even need your stadiums we can go take these games elsewhere and we have fans yeah. that will willingly pay and you know give us the the return on our investment thankfully that obviously didn't happen I, I think it's obviously a testament to the power of fans and that football is still defined by the fans but I think the bigger thing for me is that we can't kill ourselves now that this is the end yeah. of
2: yeah
1: in, in any way shape or form yeah you know, these clubs still exist. These owners still are in this primarily for the financial gain, and so we can't let ourselves think that this is in any way, shape, or form over. You know, Florentino Perez has said that these contracts are binding, and even though the plans for now have been scuppered, that the teams are still held by those contracts, and they will find a new way.
2: Yeah, we'll see about that.
1: You know, we have to we have to put things in place now to prevent this from being able to happen again without fan consent because if we don't and we think that this is a, this is just all over and that a slap on the wrist and maybe a few chief executives being fired is going to solve the problem we're kidding ourselves
2: yeah i think i think what's been so hopeful is the the coming together of all football fans but i think particularly the big six who obviously have in different uh Mixtures, historic or competitive rivalries have all come together to kind of join together. And I think now, I, I mean, there were suggestions of a, a protest before the United-Liverpool game, which is going to happen, but will be United fans. So suggestions when we were at the very kind of heart of the story, Sorry, there's a, there's a helicopter flying overhead if anyone can hear that. But there were suggestions that United and Liverpool fans could come together to, to march together in protest day. I think that kind of uh, romantic idea is probably worn off and and it, that kind of thing probably won't be possible. But the coming together of all those supporters was heartening and obviously did have a massive impact. I do think... The Super League probably collapsed not because of supporters. I think we we know that these owners hide away anyway and kind of not just hide away, but just kind of put themselves away and ignore supporter criticism. They, that is basically their job. Um, Abramovich, the Glazers, Kronke, FSJ, they've all done this. Eventually they ended up apologising. I'm not sure that's really to win supporters back. I think it's probably to win the organisations which stop them. So the Premier League, the government, the FA, UEFA, et cetera. Um, I think but probably yeah, you're also right. To
1: give an air, of, an air of stability to the stock market as well and stop yeah. the shares from <laughs> sliding so much.
2: Yeah, I think so. But you're absolutely right. We, we have to continue this momentum. This has to be a a turning point, not for the worse, but for the better. And the way to stop it is... Is to campaign for for fifty plus one ownership, and fifty plus one is, for those who don't know, is the Bundesliga model not operated by all Bundesliga clubs, but by I'd I'd say the the majority. Uh, I can't remember the specific numbers. it, it kind of comes in a couple of different forms.
1: I think it's about sixteen or seventeen of them. I know there are a few that have.
2: There's uh, there's two, two main objections. And are exempt Yeah. Aren't they? Wolfsburg and Hoffenheim who are both uh, workers clubs so Wolfsburg uh, have always been owned by uh, Volkswagen I can't remember Hoffenheim but so they were the exceptions when the 50 plus 1 rule came in in uh, I think it was the, the 90s for anyone who wants to read up more about it uh, Matt Ford who writes for DW and for United We Stand lives in Germany and is very good on all of that so find him on Twitter but the 50 plus 1 rule is where fans own 50% of the club plus one or not own 50% of the club but have 50% of the voting shares plus one vote so just the majority and I mean it, it, it's you can't oversimplify it because because to make that happen in English football would A cost a lot of money and it requires investors and it requires sacrifices and it requires regulation and legislation it requires all sorts and, and probably court cases too but I thought the most interesting idea of the week was from David Goldblatt who is a consistently brilliant in all of these. In fact, my microphone is, this is actually just a coincidence, but my microphone is sat on a a David Goldblatt book, um, The History of Football. Um, The ball is round, a history of the beautiful game. But his idea was to place a tax on the big clubs, to make government place a tax on the big clubs and after a few years, be able to buy 50% of the voting shares plus one with the revenue from that tax and then give that 50 plus one to the supporters. And I thought that was, probably the most sensible idea that anyone's come up with.
1: Yeah, I mean I like the idea. I think it's a really good way of sort of naturally generating the revenue to actually make that purchase without needing sort of more direct government intervention now to to sort of lend or buy out the owners. I think the the difficult thing with any 50 plus one is just getting the owners on side. Obviously if you can put legislation in place and, and compel them to do it, which is fine. But I think there is there needs to be some acknowledgement that this is a bit of a it's a two way relationship. You know, the owners need the fans, and as much as I hate to say this, the fans do need the owners to some degree as well. You know, we need the injection of of cash into the club to you know make all the signings that we want to sign, and it need, it needs a, a, a common sense solution. And I think that idea from from David Goldblatt makes a lot of sense. As a way that you could still drum up the money from the tax to actually buy out the owners from the rest of the club rather than just telling them, well, now you have a 49% stake in the the club. It's a a tricky situation, but I think now is absolutely the time when action needs to happen. Because, I mean, when are we ever going to get this sort of situation again? This is really the perfect storm if you're looking to reorganise English football and reform the way that club ownership works, you're never gonna get a better storm of emotions and of momentum in favour of actually giving fans more power, which is exactly what we all want. You know, I mean, a yeah. Man United run by Man United fans is something you dream up in a fantasy land. And that that yeah. is how
2: Well this it's comes. also is it's the way of not only is it is it the dream, but it's also the way of making football more sustainable. And yeah. I mean, you, you say you say fans need owners, and that is true for some clubs, but it isn't true for Manchester United. And I mean, if, if the last sixteen years have proved anything, it is exactly that United not only do not need rich owners to succeed or or to exist um, at at the least, but they can survive and have some uh, some success, even with owners who take out extraordinary amounts of money. And so, while some clubs might need it, the truth is, this it, 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 it's so hard to push for. But not only do we need fan ownership, I, I think the truth is that European football needs to redistribute its wealth much more. And that's why the the Champions League, the UEFA Champions League reforms that have been pushed through, are almost as bad as the Super League. And it doesn't just need a reversion to the current Champions League, which is a pretty decent format, but it needs a much greater redistribution of the well. There was a nice athletic article on, um, saying what would be a one change in football. And I think, I can't remember who suggested it in it. They asked all the, some of their writers and, and one person came up with the idea of a European, just a European FA Cup where every European top flight side is pitched against everyone else. And it would, it, it, it isn't a sensible or likely scenario, but it, it, it's aim is to redistribute the wealth of football because you'd have United playing smaller European teams and TV money going to those smaller teams and gate receipts. And that's the truth that f- for football to become better for everyone, it needs the wealth in the game to be distributed uh, more evenly, even if that makes it less good for us as United fans.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that the fans needing owners to some extent, probably, you're right, isn't necessarily applicable to United. But I also don't think we want to go down a road that makes that makes ownership that injects a lot of money impossible in football, I guess is my point. You know, it's, yeah, as much as we don't like, and, and sort of I, I wish that, you know, Man City didn't have um, the, all the money from Abu Dhabi coming in and that um you know all these clubs around around europe like psg have, have had these injections of money maybe we don't think it's the correct way of doing it having just gone through all of, all of this and you know fans shouting about how much we hate the fact that these clubs had an entitlement to be in this competition when they hadn't earned it we also don't want to create a rule that disincentivizes people owning a club and injecting their own money to such a degree that they effectively Boxes in the the natural order of football that we have now, yeah. you know, it it needs a balance, and I I mean to to be clear, it it needs to be re- addressed massively back towards fans, because we saw for for decades English football thrived without foreign ownership, you know, being here, and, and clubs were still able to move up and down the tiers. But I think that in the way that football is now, you need to strike a balance where fans ultimately have. The power in their hands with the fifty plus one rule, but to a point where owners can still come in with a vision for a club, yeah, and inject their own cash into that
2: club. Well, yeah, the, the idea is not that fans have the final say on on transfers or how the or even how the club is run or who's appointed. Yeah, exactly. It's that having the fifty plus one makes owners accountable and accountable to the fans, and that means that in yep. their planning and in their thinking. Whether it's their first or their final thought, it doesn't really matter. But at some point in their decision-making process, they have to think how will this play out with the fans. Which, um, which to be clear, they should yeah, be and doing that's, anyway.
1: And that's exactly what you want. You know, you want fans around around the table in shareholder meetings, and in you know when you're coming up with a vision for the club, you, you need fans around that table. They have to be there because we are ultimately. Well, While the the financial ramifications might be at the front of all of the the owners and CEOs' minds, ultimately it is the fans who are the biggest stakeholder here.
2: Right. Uh, We're going to move on to the youth loan and women's roundup and then preview the game against uh, Roma in the Europa League semi-final. Manchester United's under-23s beat Chelsea 4-2 this week, a double from Shola Shoretire and the other two goals from Ahmad Diallo and Mark Helm. Ahmad now has a goal or assist every 39 minutes in the Premier League too. His goal was a good free kick and two top goals from Shola Shoretire as well. Um, and a 5-1 win for the under-18s against Wolves to make it a great weekend for United's youth team. Some excellent finishes as Charlie McNeil and Zidane Baal both scored two, and there was one from Dylan Hoogerwerf as well. Charlie McNeil, since joining from City last summer, has been directly involved in 25 goals, made up of 19 goals himself and six assists, 25 goals in 20 games in all competitions for the under-18s this season, which is a brilliant record. He will certainly be one being promoted to become a regular in the under-23s next season. And that might see Joe Hugel, the current under-23s striker, might see him go out on loan to make space for McNeil and allow them both to continue their development at the desired rate. Iqbal as well, three goals in 96 minutes since his return from injury. McNeil's first one was especially nice, a, a ball over the top. The goalkeeper just about to get it and he just pokes it past him. Proper striker's goal that. Um, worth finding if you can on Twitter. James Nolan made his under-18 debut as well, coming on as a sub. In low news, James Garner played 90 minutes in a 1-1 draw against Stoke for Nottingham Forest. Ethan Laird played the full game for MK Dons in a 5-0 win against Swindon. Dishon Bernard played the full game for Salford City as they kept a third consecutive clean sheet against Mansfield. For the women's team, it was a great 4-1 win against Tottenham Hotspur. Casey Stoney's team had won in the FA Cup last week to build some confidence after a really disappointing month. That win against Burnley where United scored six goals was a, a good confidence boost. The United still need a miracle, really, to finish in the top three ahead of Arsenal, but a good win this one. Ella Toon, Kristen Press and Jess Sigsworth got the goals in the first half and then Toon again in the second half. And the returns from injury for Alicia Russo and Lee Galton, um, that's definitely positive. Two players United have missed massively. Russo didn't actually get on, Galton did, but Russo particularly, I think. Um, will be uh, welcomed back with uh, extraordinarily wide open arms for United to bring some goals into a team that has struggled in the second half of the season. Okay, Roma on Thursday, which uh, is a is a big game, and uh, reminds me of my first game at Old Trafford, which was Manchester United seven, uh, Roma one which I don't think will ever be beaten in games that I'll see by any team and, and individual performance. Well, a team performance, actually. Uh, pro- probably, uh, well, arguably United's greatest team performance of all time, just in the, the terms of dominance over the Italian champions. But Roma, uh, not in good form. Uh, four games without a win. Defeat to Cagliari, uh, 3-2 was their most recent defeat to Cagliari and their, their relegation battling team. Same as Torino a couple of weeks ago, another relegation involved side. Um, but yeah, uh, two losses there. Roma drew to Atalanta. Both teams had a man sent off. They also had a man sent off against Torino. And before those games, there was a, the 1-1 draw with Ajax. That was enough for them to go through after winning 2-1 in the in the first leg. But Roma only three wins in their last 10. So in bad form, they do welcome Chris Smalling back from injury. Um, to play against United for the first time since he left the club and we were chatting about this before and trying to remember just how many times Smalling played for United 323 games so he's not quite but just on the fringes of the top 50 appearance makers of all time for Manchester United which is pretty impressive for a 120 something well 130 something yeah club um but i mean united should be going through in this semi final i don't know who would have been the better tie for us ajax or roma but in both cases we we should be confident to go through but particularly with roma in bad form
1: yeah absolutely their their recent form has left a lot to be desired i mean i think you'd have to say that this is on paper at least which is of course very different to, to what could play out in reality it looks like our competition to lose from here. Yeah, Arsenal and and Villarreal in the other semi-final. I know Solskjaer has still not beaten Arteta yet if we were to play Arsenal in the final, but Roma will be, I think, a tricky tie. I reckon probably end up relatively similar to the Milan. Yeah. Two legs where it's it's tense, it's close. I don't think there'll be too much in the way of goal-mouth action. And I think you've basically just got a back that, the additional quality that United have which I think is is undoubted at this point that, that will over two legs shine through with just a few moments and that's, well, that's really all we with, need we saw it with
2: I was just going to say especially with Pod and Cavani having been basically rested um, for the game at Leeds and I mean it, United coming to this at the freshest of season that was 100% the, season, the right decision yeah. as well yeah I mean that Leeds game we didn't speak about it for that long but that Leeds game was I, I, we go into this week needing to win one game and it's a Roma game not the Leeds one so I, I was fine with that yeah and Pob and, and Cavani yep. should and do I, well you now you know
1: maybe as you mentioned earlier maybe if City had lost yeah. to Villa maybe then there's you know that, that could have made it five points but the, after beating Villa there's absolutely no need to be wasting players who who maybe can't play two two ninety minutes a week Roma has to be the priority for the next few weeks and, and you saw Luke Shaw say as much after the game as yeah. well The Roma is is the priority for the next couple of weeks we've obviously now got Roma, Liverpool, Roma coming up which is not going to be easy <laughs> but I think e- even if you have to rest a couple of players against Liverpool which feels very very strange I, and I doubt we will but to be honest if that means we could get through against Roma it might be worth it in the well long it's, run. it's
2: interesting isn't it because I'm trying to think when was the last season that we really had and I'm not going to say we had nothing to play for because we still could let second slip if we had a massive crash but when was the last season that we kind of went this relaxed into the end of a season would it be Mourinho's second or or, in in the league yeah yeah god I'm just
1: yeah probably must have been the Mourinho season finishing second
2: because last season we were competing for top four 2018-19, 2018, 19, we were still kind of going for top four, but ended up finishing sixth yeah. as we we messed it up at the end of the season. Um, but we we were making up ground anyway. But that was when we lost to Huddersfield and yeah. Cardiff, wasn't it? Um, I guess I guess yeah, Mourinho's last season, we were a couple of clear, a few clear of Spurs in second, but I, we're still still a little bit closer than we are now. And 2017. I probably, probably 2016, 17 is the last time we really didn't care about the league going into the final few weeks when Mourinho yeah. put all of his eggs in the Europa League basket and it, it, it did pay off. Um, but yeah, United have to win the Europa League now, having gone out the FA gone out of two domestic cups, second basically being wrapped up if, if we don't collapse. Um, uh, Michael Byatt's one of our patrons sent in a question saying in order to win in Rome, does the team just need to score some of the chances it creates against Leeds or was there a dearth of chances? I'd say that the last few weeks, I mean, the last few weeks of defence have been pretty solid. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't think it should be underestimated just how uh, we should appreciate how consistent yeah. and solid that back forward is at the moment. There's still issues in it, particularly from set pieces and with some positioning and individual weaknesses. And it it isn't the perfect back four. And I don't think it's a title winning back four. But Maguire has now played 71 consecutive Premier League games for United, equaling Gary Pallister's club record that he set from 1993 to 1995. And the back four as a whole, it's just, it just picks itself now. And so defensively, there are still problems. We're still conceding goals we shouldn't, but in terms of overall goals conceded, it's at a pretty good record and a pretty good rate. It's finishing yeah, clinically. recently,
1: it's been brilliant.
2: Yeah, it's finishing our chances that has been the problem recently. So I'd say, it, is it that we're not finishing our chances or we're not creating enough? I'd say it's kind of 50-50 of both.
1: Yeah, I don't think that's an unfair comment at all. I think we definitely aren't creating quite as much as we were when we were playing at our best, but we're still creating enough every game to win and and to win relatively comfortably. I think Fernandes hasn't been quite his best, which I think we all kind of expected. He was never going to be able to keep up the form that he showed in his first year at the club forever. But I think I'm not too concerned about us creating chances. There was a period six to eight weeks ago where it felt like we we weren't being creative at all but I think we we are past that. It's just a case of of finding a way to get the ball in the back of the net. And as you said, the defence being so solid recently is a a massive, massive boost. I was pleased as well. Maguire just got his 10th yellow card of the season and he managed to wait one week after the suspension uh, window. (laughs) So he doesn't actually get the two match ban for it now. So he can go through. Would this be the second consecutive season for United where he's gone, played every minute of the Premier League? I think it would.
2: Yeah, yeah, it would.
1: I mean, I, I mean that that alone is is just incredible.
2: He's he's almost. I was looking at this the other day for a piece, and he's um, almost at the most consecutive, the most full matches played consecutively in the Premier League. I think it's. I think the record is Leighton Baines at Everton, or there's someone else I'm forgetting. For outfield players, Jamie Carragher, I think is fifth. I think Maguire's either has, or is just about to overtake him.
1: Well, I know Conor Kobe has a very long record for minutes, but that, some of that might be in the championship.
2: Yeah, some of it is, but he's also in the, in the top few in the, in the Premier League. I think Maguire, if he will break it, and I'll check this afterwards, but I think if he's going to break it, he will have the chance to do so in September of next season. So he's he's pretty close. Um, so yeah, it, it, I mean, it would be a testament to his ability to stay fit, and that's such a underrated. I mean, it's kind of a rated ability, and yet it's still underrated.
1: I mean, especially when we've gone through so many centre backs that have had injury issues, like Smalling and Jones, and then Eric Bailly. Yeah, Trans has been injured quite a bit this season. You know, just having someone that picks themselves every single week. That alone is is a massive, massive yeah. boost.
2: Yeah, uh, on, on the subject of Eric buy, we'll talk about his new contract in the Patreon Q&A, but uh, we need to wrap up. Your prediction for Roma at home on Thursday night?
1: I'll go for a very nervy 2-1 win for United.
2: Be, uh, be an okay way to take a, a result here today. I'm, I'm going to go with yeah. with 3-1 United. More confident. Um, thank you very Thought much you for were listening. I you 7-1
1: for a second and repeat <laughs> 2007. <Wow.
2: laughs> yeah, that would be a treat, but not one I can, not one I'll foresee. Um, thank you very much for listening, everyone. Uh, obviously, there's Liverpool on Sunday as well. Let us know if you're planning to go to uh, Sunday's uh, March, ahead of the Liverpool game at Old Trafford to protest against all the things that need protesting against. Um, I'd be interested to hear from people who are going um, I'm yeah 3-1 from me 2-1 from Jack From more thrust out the weak reaction to the Roma game you can find Jack on Twitter at
1: at T-A-I-T.
2: And you can find me at Harry Robinson64 and the podcast itself at UTD Weekly Pod. That's P O D at the end there. And that's where you can also find out information about how to sign up to become a patron. But we will speak to you after the Liverpool game, by which time, hopefully, United are comfortable going into a second leg against Roma and have beaten the Scousers. But until then, goodbye. Have a great week.
0: network. 18 plus.